that's, that's a good thing. So, um, typically, I ask Karen to pick a psalm, then I trump her at the last minute. And uh, so I did the same thing this morning. I said, so pick a psalm. And she said, why? You always change it. <laughs> and so I, I said, but it's it's good. It's a good, uh, a good thing to do, even if uh, I end up changing it because I think there might be something more applicable to our passage in the morning. It's good because, one, when she shares that with me, it causes me to think more deeply and reflect on, on the day, you know, uh, the Lord waking me up this morning. Um, and it's also good for her to just spend that time digging into the Psalms, trying to figure out, you know, what would be applicable to John chapter 12. Um, so she looked in her margin notes this morning and came up with Psalm 118. And I said, oh, that's a good one. That's the one I was going to trump you with. But you <laughs> so we're going to look at Psalm 118 this morning. And I, I, a lot of times, uh, this is one that I know I read a lot, but it really is appropriate for the passage that we're looking at this morning. So whoever gets to Psalm 118, I would like to read out first. 29 verses. Psalm 118. Anyone? Anyone? Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his love endures forever. In my anguish I cried to the Lord, and he answered by setting me free. The Lord is with me, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord is with me, he is my helper. I will look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surround me, but in the name of the Lord I cut them off. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord I cut them off. They swarmed around me like bees, but they died out as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord I cut them off. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live, and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God. He has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, join in the festival procession to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Amen. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his love, his loving kindness, endures forever. It's everlasting. So what do you suppose this psalm is about? <coughs> I'm not going to answer this for you. What do you suppose the psalm is about? It's about praising the Lord. It is. It's about um, faith in the Lord, um, but in a very uh, personal way. In that, uh, you know, Bob was uh, thankful for uh, the Lord giving him breath and waking him up this morning. And, uh, and you see that... Um, Repeated at the beginning, that same kind of thankfulness and recognition of who we are 
as people and how vulnerable we are and the sentence that we stand under. I say the sentence because it says in the Bible the wages of sin is death. Uh, we know that that's true. We know it in our physical bodies. We know it um, as the spirit witnesses to our spirit that that's true. And that can be uh, overwhelming. But here there's comfort in the Lord. And that's the faith piece that we trust in him. Um, and it says that... Um, oh, let's, let's see if I can find it again. It says uh, where he... He not only has um, strengthened me, verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. So it isn't just that God um, interacts with his creation through upholding it, right? So we understand that all that we see in the universe, all that we experience, is continually upheld by God's hand. If God stepped back from his creation, it would cease to exist. We wouldn't get up in the morning and breathe, right? So our very breath is dependent upon God um, and his love and as it's poured out in creation. But then it says he's become my salvation. So he didn't just leave us as part of this, uh, this world's creation, but actually invite us and has invited us into communion with him and that we are offered eternal life. And so that's just an incredible statement. He's my strength and song and has become my salvation. As we read on down, what you find is that um, as he saves us, we're actually invited into his righteousness. So righteousness is something that makes you rejoice. Righteousness isn't a burden. A lot of times we think about all of the requirement of the law, right, and how heavy and burdensome that is. Gee, if I could only just have my own way. But then when we have our own way, we find out, wow, that isn't so hot. I think I like the, the yoke of the Lord better. And that yoke is a yoke of righteousness. To Righteousness, it means to uh, do that which is right, right? To do that which is true, to do that which is good. Well, that's who God is, right? So he invites us into the very part of himself that is good and true and um, he makes it says that we're able to enter into the gate of righteousness and we understand that as we went through John we talked about the Lord being the good shepherd and that he is the gate the way um, into eternal life that he is our protector so you see all of that imagery that has been presented as we've done our our study through John up through the first 11 chapters represented up to this verse 22. And 22 is, is uh, one of those key turning points in the psalm because basically up to that point, um, it's, uh, it's declaring what God has done, who he is and what he's done in goodness. But then you get to the response part. What's our response to the goodness of God? When we get to, to verse 22, it says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Or in the verse that, or in the way that uh, the translation you read from, it said the capstone. So do you know what a cornerstone or a capstone is? Has anybody heard that term before? I see some heads nodding. So uh, a capstone, if you're building an arch, and an arch is a, is a remarkable thing, right? It actually it looks like it defies gravity. It comes up and it curves in and it comes together and there's an opening underneath it that you can pass through and that arch doesn't collapse. And the reason it doesn't collapse is because where all of the, the forces come together in, in making that strong, that one stone at the very top is essential for how those forces are distributed throughout the arch that make they give it strength, and make it whole. That's who Christ is. He's the one that gives us strength and makes us whole. The same idea, if you, if you were to translate instead of capstone, a cornerstone, when you build something, um, you have a point of reference. So a couple summers ago, I built a a nice shed at my house. When I set out to do that, I picked a point that I was going to set everything from. 
And that point, as I built my foundation and leveled it and everything is necessary, and you got to have a good level foundation before you build your structure, otherwise it comes off like this. And I may be a little bit twisted, but my building wasn't. Um, and the reason why is because I went from a good point of reference and I made everything true to that. That's what, that's what Christ is. He's the cornerstone. He's that which the building's foundation rests upon for its truth. For um, in that sense, he provides the structural stability for the whole of the building. So when you see that Christ is um, talked about as the one who sustains creation, he sustains it in that way. He is the truth of creation that upholds it and makes it, makes it all come together and work. And so we see that the stone which the builders rejected, so this very truth about the reality of God and his creation was rejected. It was rejected by the ones who were supposed to be smart and know which stone to pick. But they rejected this cornerstone. And it says, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. That the wisdom of men would show to be no wisdom at all. But the wisdom of God is marvelous. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be, and be glad in it. This day that it's talking about is the day for which all of the Bible leads up to. And all of the Bible after that day points back to. It's a, a singular day in history where God becomes our salvation. And his work is complete. And in that sense, he's fully glorified because his plan can't be thwarted. And we read on, it says, do say, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you. Do send uh, prosperity. Do send that wholeness. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. That's what we're doing today. The Lord God, uh, the Lord is God, and he has given us light. Now we've seen that as we've gone through John, he uses this metaphor of light and darkness a lot. We're going to see that again today. Um, the idea that the true light has come into the world and that this is the light of men and darkness cannot overcome it. Right? And we saw that both in the prologue, but we saw it developed as Jesus went through and challenged the various institutions and uh, festivals of the religious structure of the day. He pointed out that, no, he is the true light. He is the true uh, bread of life. He is the true... A drink which can satisfy, can, can actually refresh our spirit, right? And he uses this idea of light and darkness to declare who he is and what his mission is. And we see that, um, can you read uh, verse 27 again in your translation? The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us with bows in hand, joining in the festival procession up to the horns of the altar. With bows in hand, let us join in the festival procession. So, uh, in mine it says, bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. In other words, um, there is Christ being presented um, in triumph. So, the idea of palm bows, and we, we talk about Palm Sunday, which we're going to celebrate here in, in uh, several weeks. Um, we're going to read about it this morning. Um, the idea of these palm boughs is, is how they would uh, celebrate victory, right? Um, it was, uh, for example, when the Jewish nation was rebelling against the Romans, um, they, they had their own uh, coins that they stamped. And on those coins, they put palm, uh, palm boughs because it was a sign of victory. So when we think about this Palm Sunday, it was the people thought, here is the victorious king, the conquering king, the one who is going to be presented, and yet that one was tied to the horns of the altar. Right? So you see in this psalm all of the imagery of what God was doing for us in Christ, what he has done for us in Christ. You are my God, and I give you thanks. You are my God, and I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. 
for his love endures forever. I think that's how yours translated it. I love the word loving kindness because um, you know we we understand uh, the the strength of God can be quite uh, fearsome. You know, I mean, if you come into the presence of God, usually the universal response say usually because there is one that stands in defiance uh, to God, but the universal response of those who uh, come into God's presence is to fall on your face and cover your head say, woe is me, because he truly is righteous, and our righteousness is like you know, filthy rags in his presence. Um, so let's take a look at uh, chapter 12 of John this morning. We're going to actually come into the presence of the king. Um, and this is the king who is the victorious king, but he's victorious in the most unusual way. Um, we understand that he's loving and kind, and that that loving kindness leads him to actually lay down his life for his people, and that he's been announcing that in advance. And we're going to see the third announcement in John, uh, which patterns the three announcements of the crucifixion in the other gospels. So, if you look at Matthew, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, there's a pattern where at certain points, strategic points, Jesus predicts that he's going to his death and that it'll be a death of crucifixion. And there were three specific um, announcements of that. Last week, uh, we looked at Luke 9, and we saw two of those announcements in Luke. Today we're going to see the third one in John. I can point out the other three if you're interested. But let's go ahead and read through uh, John chapter 12. This is the, the turning point, the capstone. Uh, before we read, so let's read and then I'm going to say, no, let's wait a minute. Um, if you look at the organization of John, uh, I, I presented it having basically five sections, three in the main body. This is the end of the first section in the main body of John. So this is what they call the, uh, the bookend on the book of signs. So it ends in chapter 12. And there's a reason why it, his public ministry uh, stops here. And then we're going to see a private or a, a, more, um, a, a more tender ministry to those that were going to be with him at the end and that had responsibility for taking the message to the world. But this is the, the, uh, the end of this, this public ministry. We read in chapter 12, it says, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii, and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, and he used to pilfer what was put into it, Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see also Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. 
So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. <coughs> now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the, the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for yours. Mm -hmm. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered, We have heard out, of, heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes, and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I healed them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of them. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my saying and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. So what kind of things popped off the page as I read through? Surprising that they're trying to kill Lazarus again. Yeah. So they really, they really had a, a thing for Jesus, and because Lazarus testified to who Jesus was and people were hearing Lazarus, Lazarus testimony and they knew Lazarus had died and they, and they know Jesus raised him from the dead they said well we'll not only kill Jesus but we'll kill Lazarus too you know we'll take out this whole movement let's cut it out at the root right so there were there was basically what you're saying is there was a lot of uh, very strong uh, unbelief that this was that was the, the primary problem. So, you know, we've talked about this trajectory through uh, John and what John's trying to tell us, right? What's the theme of John? Don't believe in me. Don't believe in me. That's right. 
uh, says there, uh, this is in John 20, uh, 30 and 31. So therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John's point in writing all these things is to help us know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He wants us to understand what it means that Jesus is the Christ. And he wants us to understand what it means that he's the Son of God. Um, because in that is our life. That's how we have eternal life, is in him. And so up through chapter 11, he's been challenging these various institutions and, and festivals, all of the things that we think we know about who God is and what our plan of salvation is, um, he's been challenging that and showing that, no, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he's going to declare that here privately in just a few, few hours beyond what we're reading about right now. But what happened is as we saw this progression through John, it got to a point where people needed to make a choice. So we looked at the first of those that was, you know, in your face was in uh, chapter 9, where he's fully revealed to the man that was formerly blind. He was born blind, and he was healed. And Jesus um, asked him if he believes in the Son of Man. So he's asking for the, this individual whom he has had personal ministry with if he believes in the Son of Man. And, and the answer was, who is the Son of Man? Mm -hmm. And he said, I am, mm -hmm. the one who is speaking to you. Now, the Son of Man was a particular title for Messiah. We know that from Daniel 7.13. Right? So if you go to Daniel 7.13, and Daniel had a vision. So this is when Daniel's in captivity. So... Um, the Jews had been <clears throat> taken uh, by force. Their country had been totally conquered. There was nothing left. And they could have become extinct as a race and extinct certainly as a people group, as a nation. Um, in fact, most ancient nations did become extinct. There are very few that actually persist to this day that actually were around time of the captivity. Babylon is gone. Persia is trying to uh, reassert itself. Right? Greece is gone, although we have a real strong uh, remnant of it. Rome is gone, although we have a real strong remnant of it. Egypt is still around, so there aren't very many nations, and the ones that actually endured to this day are, were the big players in all of history. Egypt was an empire, and it was an empire for a long time, right? That's very unusual in the history of humanity. Most of these nations would rise and fall. And if they became an empire, like the Romans or the Greeks, they didn't necessarily have a good end. And yet, we see that the Jews were preserved as a people group, as a nation. And they were preserved um, not just... As a, as a nationality, but they were also preserved um, as a race. That they would have a descendancy that they could trace all the way back to Abraham. And that's what they're arguing about today in the Middle East. We read in Daniel 7.13, so here's Daniel in this place of being conquered and at the point where the race could be extinguished and the nation could be extinguished, and he has a vision. And it says, He kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... One like the Son of Man was coming. So this is an official title. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, that is, the enthroned God. And he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So we're talking about an, an eternal king who will be in dominion of all nations. All nations will bow to him. Right? And that that's the way that God intends it from his throne. He's, this is one who's presented before his throne, and God actually um, 
gives him legitimate rule as king. God is the legitimate king. How can God give his legitimate um, rule to another? We read in Psalm 110, I'm going to take you to Psalm 110, uh, how this mystery actually occurs. Psalm 110 says this, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are, as the, uh, are to you as to do. So, what that part of Psalm 110 is, is, is a declaration about who this king is, who this son of man is. And the very first, um, first line of this psalm says, the Lord says to my Lord. Now, if you have a, a, a translation like the King James um, or the NASB, you'll see that there's a difference in capitalization of these words, because there are two different words for Lord. One of them is all caps Lord, and the other one is capital L, lowercase O-R-D. Two different words. One of them, the first one, all caps, is the name of God which cannot be spoken. So we understand it's the God who is enthroned in heaven, the creator of all things. That is Yahweh. The, that's how we, we put vowels in with the consonants, and we say it. The Jews will never say it. This is a word that they'll never say, because this is the name of God. This is the name that was given to Moses when Moses met God in the desert. And he came to God at the burning bush and said, Who shall I say sent me? And he said, Tell them I am sent you. It has to do with that he is the one who has life in it himself. He is not created. He, he, has, uh, he is self-existent. He has life in him. He is the originator of life. And that's, says that Lord says to my Lord, the second word is not Yahweh, but Adonai. That was the name of God that could be said by the Jews. They couldn't say the first one, but they could say the second one because it had associated with it a concept of how you would have a Lord, a master, a king, um, that you could actually relate to, that you could talk to the king. And that he would be, in that sense, fully human. He would be our human connection to the divine. He would be fully man and fully God. The father said to the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's the way I read that. When I read Daniel... 7.13 I'm reading the same thing I'm reading Behold one like the son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him The Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand the place of rule, the place of authority and to him was given dominion glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations and men of every language might serve him and his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. There's only one kingdom that doesn't pass away, and one kingdom that is not destroyed, and that's the kingdom of God. When Jesus came, he spoke as a man and said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The title for the one who was the rightful king of that kingdom is the Son of Man. So when Jesus asked the blind man, do you believe in the Son of Man? He was asking the blind man, you know you're a good Jew, you understand Daniel 7.13, you understand the concept of Messiah, that there would be a king, that there would be, although they didn't understand how that king could be fully man and fully God, nonetheless, they understood that God had a Messiah, that it was God's Messiah. They didn't know if, if uh, the clouds would part and God would you know, come down they didn't have this idea that God would actually be born in a stable. That he would be fully human in the sense that we're fully human. 
right? That was, that's something that we can't get our head around. How can God become man? But nonetheless, he believed the, the truth about the Son of Man. And he said, Lord, I believe. As we got to chapter 10 and chapter 11, you saw those same questions repeated. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? To the point where um, those who were closest to Jesus, Martha and Mary, um, when Lazarus was in the tomb, Jesus said, I am what? The resurrection and the life. So he's making a declaration. One, he's telling how that life can be imparted through resurrection. But he's making a declaration that he is the God-man. He has control over life and death. And he is the one who is our salvation. He is Psalm 118. He is the cornerstone that the builders rejected. And we saw at the end of chapter 11 that the people were rejecting him. There were some that believed, and some that even in the face of one being raised from the dead, did not believe. Right? That's, that's pretty scary because we see all of this coming to this point. That it's about who is this man Jesus and do you believe that? And so they didn't. There were people that did not believe. So this passage in chapter 12 is all about that question. Do you believe this? Let's look at what happens in chapter 12. First, Jesus comes to to uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha's house again. So um, take a look at the map. So Jesus has been up here. We talked about um, last week, uh, Luke chapter 9. They were up here at Mount Hermon, uh, came all the way down, Caesarea Philippi, came all the way down through the Jordan Valley. Everything that we've read about that trek of Jesus, he set, you're going to read this this morning in this morning's sermon, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. In other words, he was determined to complete the mission for which he had come, which was our salvation. Yeah. And the only way he could conquer death was through death. Mm-hmm. He actually had to die to defeat it. And only God could do that. We were, we're lost without our Savior. Mm-hmm. Right? And so he came all the way down here and he makes this final ascent um, up to, I'm going to zoom in a little bit here. And I tried to anyway. There we go. Uh, zoom in in one more time here. And I'll show you where he's going. Um, let's see if we can get the epigram. Okay. So uh, you probably aren't going to be able to read these titles because they're going to be too not pronounced enough for you. I'm going to try and make them more pronounced. I don't know if anybody can see those titles. Um, so there's a, a city up here called Ephraim. Um, Jerusalem's right in here. Uh, Mount of Olives, Bethany, Bethphage. They're all in this area right here. And what happened is, is when Jesus came up this ascent to outside of Jerusalem to raise Lazarus, um, the people, the, I say the people, the Jews, the leaders, wanted to kill him then. They wanted to arrest him and kill him. But Jesus knew that his time had not yet come. His hour had not come. So he hung out up here in Ephraim for a period of time. Ephraim is near um, the mountain or the, the hilltop they call Bethel, which means house of God. That's where Jacob had his, uh, his vision. We call it the vision of Jacob's ladder. So Jacob, who was renamed Israel, um, when he was on the run, he had stolen the birthright from his brother, Esau. Then he stole the blessing, and Esau was ticked off and was going to kill him. And we know that, you know, brother, brotherly love and how one wants to kill the other, that goes all the way back to just outside the Garden of Eden. Um, and that Jacob is on the run, and he comes to this place called Bethel, which means house of God. And he lays his head down on a rock. That's what they used for pillows back then. Be grateful you got flowers or you got feathers today. So lays his head down on a rock and he falls asleep. And he sees this vision where the gates of heaven are opened. And coming up and down 
on uh, a ladder between heaven and earth are the angels of God. And at the end of his vision, what happens is the gates close back up. And Jacob wakes up and he says, whoa, this place is, you know, I just had this incredible vision, saw God in a vision, and a way between heaven and earth in the vision, and this place is blessed. I'm going to call this the house of God. He goes on his way and ends up over here and then comes back. When he comes back into the land, he goes to Bethel again. So when you read the story of Jacob and his transformation from uh, faithless to faithful, um, from twisted um, to broken seeking righteousness, right? Not righteous, but one who is seeking righteousness, seeking that entry into God's kingdom, he comes back to, to Bethel. So when we looked at John chapter 1, I'm just going to try and tie this all together for you. In John chapter 1 at the very end, when Jesus, before he even starts his ministry, right, he just comes out of this Jordan River Valley. He's been baptized right here by John. John the Baptist pointed him out to some of his followers, John's followers, and said, that's the one you're supposed to be following. That's the Lamb of God. Follow him. And there were a couple that, that heard. John, uh, the apostle, was one. His brother, James, Andrew, Peter's brother, and Andrew went and got Peter and brought him. And Philip, this guy that we also read about, Philip from Bethsaida, was there. And then there was another one. Philip went and got Nathaniel. And Nathaniel was from Cana. Right? And these are all places that Jesus visited as part of his ministry. Well, we read about when he's talking to Nathaniel. Um, and I'm going to read in uh, John chapter 1. And uh, I'm going I'm to start at verse 45. It says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. So the law and the prophets all testify about Jesus, which is why last week I pointed out that's why the law and the prophets met Jesus at the point of transfiguration. Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, or in whom there is no Jacob. Um, and Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Because this is like a personal question. Here's a guy saying, You're a man of integrity. I can see it in you. And Nathanael says, How do you know that? A person of integrity would actually ask that question rather than leverage it for their own gain. Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So Jesus says he's, he's revealing that although he's fully human, he is also um, fully God, and that he sees and knows the hearts of men. And uh, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. You're Messiah. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. Which he did. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That very title that is given to this one in Daniel 7, uh, 13, that is the Messiah. The one who is fully human and fully God. And he's saying that you're going to see the gates of heaven opened and the angels ascending and descending, the saints, the messengers, ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So the Son of Man is that bridge between heaven and earth. That's what he's telling Nathaniel. That's remarkable. He's saying, and, and, and the language here is really unique. When he says you'll see the gates of heaven opened, the language is different than it was uh, in what Jacob saw. Jacob saw the gates open and close. Jesus says you're going to see the gates open and remain open. It's what they call a perfect tense. So it's an action with a continuing result. The gates of heaven are going to be open and they're going to remain open. When Christ died for our sins, he opened the gates of heaven and they remain open. We have away into heaven. And we're invited 
into that communion with God. That's what Psalm 118 was all about. Right? So, this idea of the Son of Man and where Jesus went to before his final trek back to the cross is really significant. He was up here in this city of Ephraim, right next to Bethel. And he made his final trip down. It says, therefore, Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany. Well, if you read at the end of 11, he had gone to Ephraim. Now he's coming back to this place where they were going to arrest him before. Um, and he comes back to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there. And Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. So when it says that they made a supper there, this was a big deal. This was like uh, a big meal. And we read about a lot of people came. And Lazarus, uh, because he was reclining at the table, meant he was a guest of honor. Those that are reclining at the table are in the positions of honor. There are servants around, and women and children around the edges, but um, those at the table are the honored guests. And Lazarus, this man of faith, who it was, it was going to cost him his life, ultimately. Because just as they killed Jesus, just as they killed Stephen, just as they killed James, just as they killed all of the apostles, excepting John, a declaration of faith, joining him, costs. There is a cost of discipleship. And Jesus actually alludes to this later in this passage. When he's saying, you know, this is what it means to follow me. You join in. And here's Lazarus reclining at the table. And Mary took a pound of very costly perfume, pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So, um, we read a little bit further that Judas, when he saw this, he said, you know, this is worth 300 denarii. This is worth a year's wages. So this was uh, a significant, um, a valuable thing. And that uh, it was the most costly gift that you could give, in essence. A year's wages, pure nard. And what Mary did is she... Uh, broke this, took the whole thing, and used it on Jesus. And we, if you read the account in Mark, um, you'll read the account of how basically his whole body was covered. Here it says that she anointed the feet of Jesus, but she didn't just anoint the feet of Jesus, she anointed his head, she saturated his clothing. He, he was so strongly drenched in this that it was like being embalmed. And that Jesus recognized this, that this whole thing was about um, preparation for his death, and that Mary believed, right? Because she was asked the same question, do you believe? She believed. She didn't question. She didn't like it. She didn't like that the one whom she loved was going to have to go through this horrific crucifixion for us. She didn't like that. It broke her to the point where she actually took and used her hair to dry his feet of this, this nard perfume. That's very significant. Only the husband could actually see the hair. I don't know if you know anything about Middle Eastern culture. They always cover their head. Women are not allowed to show their hair. The only one that can see your hair, your full head of hair, is your husband. So here's Mary basically giving her all to Christ. She, she's... Um, laid down her life in the way that she can lay down her life in belief that he is the Christ, the Son of God. <clears throat> and she anoints him for his burial. Right? Says, uh, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples said, intending to betray him, was this perfume uh, not sold for 300 denarii? Uh, or why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now, Jesus, now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief, and he had the money box, and he used to pilfer what was put into it. So we see some of Judas's motive uh, revealed here. Uh, we know he betrayed the Lord. His concern was for the kingdom of the world, not the kingdom of God. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. That idea of, uh, and, 
and, and others may have a different uh, interpretation. What does is, what is yours say on uh, verse 7? Can you read that? Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Okay. So, um, the idea that when Mary had this, this she kept it with this intent. She understood that what Jesus said was true. Whether she liked it or not, she understood that it was true. And Jesus is pointing out, she understands what she's doing. She knows the sacrifice that she's making. And then he goes on and says, for you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. So uh, a lot of people would think, well, is Jesus not concerned about the poor? What was most needful? We've got a couple of other people. You're talking. I'm not sure where that's from. Uh, what was most needful for the people? What's most needful for poor people? Salvation. Pardon? Salvation. Yeah. I mean, we, we think of uh, immediate provision of food and shelter and things like that, but no, 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 that's always going to be an issue in the, the physical reality of God's creation, right? We're to depend on Him for that. In fact, we're to depend on Him for our very breath. We're to depend on Him for our very life, mm -hmm. eternal life. Salvation is the most important thing. And that's what He's pointing out. It's not that... Um, you don't have genuine needs in the world because you do. Everybody, you know, it's like I've got, I don't know how many more years ahead of me uh, in my job. I'm really thinking about retirement and I'm way away from it and that really is a bad place to be when you're thinking about, gee, I can't wait till I get there and here I am, right? Um, and the reason I'm that way is because I recognize um, the burden of needing to uh, eat, to sleep, to have shelter, to uh, interact in the world. I mean, and, and I understand now more than I did when I was 19 that gravity gets stronger when you get older, so it comes with greater effort. Uh, all this, right? So, young folks, just remember gravity gets stronger. Pulls the color out of your hair, right? Yeah, and it's like, man, Lord, I need this. No, he says, no, what you really need is you need me. Um, it's not that you don't have legitimate concerns, it's just that what is most needful. You'll always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. And that this was the time that he had come for. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So Lazarus was becoming a celebrity. And the chief priest may have put Lazarus to death also, kind of where we started. We're almost out of time, so it's good to come back to where we started. Uh, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Now, who were they believing in? Because the question comes up, who is this Son of Man? Because they thought the Son of Man, the conquering king, um, and I'm, I'm going to look ahead to verse 34, it says, the crowd then answered him, we have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. All that stuff I shared out of Daniel and the Psalms. Um, how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up, must be put to death? Who is this son of man? So their understanding, when they said, I believe in the son of man, was they expected that, that king that would come and free them from oppression of Roman rule. They expected the one who would restore Israel, which was a captive nation, even though they kind of had their political structure and all that, it was only at the... Um, the allowance, the Romans allowed them to do that. So if the Romans decided, no, we're done with this, they would come in and they would close up shop and they would, they would have Roman rule. They didn't have freedom in the sense of, or I should say, they didn't have liberty. Christ set them free, but they didn't have liberty. And 
They, but that's what they expected. They expected the great liberator. And so when it says some were believing in him, they still didn't get it. They didn't understand that the real enemy was the one who is trying to destroy your soul, your spirit. The, the one who brought death. And that our enemy is death. Because we sinned, we die. And that death means complete separation from God for all eternity. That's our real enemy. They didn't believe that that's what he, Jesus, the Son of Man, came for. They believed that he came to liberate them from and be a, a great king. And that they would be a great nation forever until the end of time. So even though it says they were believing in him, it would be only a few days later that they would join in a crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him. He's not our king. Give us Barabbas. Right? So there's this whole thing going on, and that's what you see next. And I know I'm out of time, but I'm going to go ahead and read it because to show you that what the belief and how it was not a belief in Christ as Savior, but a belief in the, the, the liberating king, we read about what they did next. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even king of Israel. This is the very same thing that happened when Jesus fed 5,000 with bread. They wanted to take him and make him king because he provided for them. Uh, he helped lessen the strain of gravity. You know, I described that whole process for me, and I think gravity gets stronger. Um, and that's what they saw. They saw, here's one who can alleviate our suffering, who can liberate us from oppression. They didn't see one who could save their soul. And they, the way that this is expressed is they cut palm branches, the very symbol of victory, and they put them down in front of Jesus. And they said, you are our king. Right? And it, what was written on Jesus' um, accusations when he was crucified? King, Here's king Jesus, of king of the Jews. Concern was, is he a king? Well, yeah, he is a king. But he's a kind of king that nobody exactly understood or imagined. And so they, they did this. And Jesus, finding a donkey, sat on it as written. And now he starts fulfilling prophecy. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, that means after he was crucified... Then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. They did get it when they saw that the grave was empty. When they saw, oh, he just conquered death. Death no longer has hold on him. Well, guess what? It never had hold on him to begin with. He laid down his life. And that's what they came to understand. And that the very resurrected life of Jesus in the flesh is the very resurrected life that we yeah. will have. That's what he did for us. Then they got it. But here they didn't get it. Even though there's going to be a call, do you believe? And some are going to say, yes, I believe. And some are going to say, no, kill the guy. Nonetheless, they didn't get it. And what I would say is, is that a lot of us today still don't get it. We live in a world where we're concerned about the, the, the trappings and the comforts of the world. I, I get caught in that. The kingdom of the world is very strong in the way that it wants to pull you away to its kingdom. We're going to see it today at the Super Bowl. So even if you don't like football, you like the commercials, right? Everybody wants to see the commercials. Because we want to see what is the best foot forward of the kingdom of the world. It's empty. There is nothing ultimately in the kingdom of the world. Our salvation, our strength, our song is Jesus, the cornerstone. 
whom the builders rejected. Let's go ahead and close here in prayer. Lord, thank you for um, thank you for everything. We thank you that um, we'll think about you during the football game. We thank you that uh, we'll trust in you. Uh, you know, as I talked about thinking about retirement and the weight of uh, of labor, um, Lord that you'll refresh me and provide for me, but ultimately um, you'll deliver me, um, that I'll know you face-to-face -face in your kingdom, now through faith, then through sight. Lord, that's true of everyone in here, that we desire uh, to have life. I can't imagine somebody coming here for any other purpose other than to seek you and to seek life. And Lord, I just ask that your spirit would speak to them this morning both through this time and the time to come with Pastor Bob as he takes us in the next uh, chapters of Luke as we're studying over the next weeks to come about uh, your final ministry, the whole point of what you came for uh, through dying for our sin and being raised on the third day. Lord, uh, we want to declare that to the world. Lord, give us that, that view of your kingdom that that would be our song that we would be singing about who you are and what you've done, mm -hmm. and that, uh, that your power in the Spirit would go out and save many peoples. Lord, we thank you for this. Lord, we thank you for your protection. It's a crazy world, uh, crazier every day. We thank you for your provision. We thank you for your love and tender service to us, Lord, that you would lay down your life, and that we're going to see that you would actually wash the feet of those who you've chosen to bring your message, Lord, that you would uh, very tenderly care for them. You very tenderly care for us. We thank you for that, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.